Chapter Five of Riders of the Purple Sage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Laurie Ann Walden. Riders of the Purple Sage by Zane Gray. Chapter Five: The Masked Rider. Venters looked quickly from the fallen rustlers to the canyon where the others had disappeared. He calculated on the time needed for running horses to return to the open if their riders heard shots. He waited breathlessly. But the estimated time dragged by, and no riders appeared. Venters began presently to believe that the rifle reports had not penetrated into the recesses of the canyon, and felt safe for the immediate present. He hurried to the spot where the first rustler had been dragged by his horse. The man lay in deep grass, dead, jaw fallen, eyes protruding, a sight that sickened Venters. The first man at whom he had ever aimed a weapon he had shot through the heart. With the clammy sweat oozing from every pore, Venters dragged the rustler in among some boulders and covered him with slabs of rock. Then he smoothed out the crushed trail in grass and sage. The rustler's horse had stopped a quarter of a mile off and was grazing. When Venters rapidly strode toward the masked rider, not even the cold nausea that gripped him could wholly banish curiosity, for he had shot Aldring's infamous lieutenant, whose face had never been seen. Venters experienced a grim pride in the feat. What would Tull say to this achievement of the outcast who rode too often to deception pass? Venters' curious eagerness and expectation had not prepared him for the shock he received when he stood over a slight, dark figure— the rustler wore the black mask that had given him his name, but he had no weapons. Venters glanced at the drooping horse. There were no gun-sheaths on the saddle. "'A rustler who didn't pack guns,' muttered Venters. "'He wears no belt. He couldn't pack guns in that rig. Strange.' A low, gasping intake of breath and a sudden twitching of body told Venters the rider still lived. "'He's alive. I've got to stand here and watch him die.' and I shot an unarmed man. Shrinkingly, Venters removed the rider's wide sombrero and the black cloth mask. This action disclosed bright chestnut hair, inclined to curl, and a white, youthful face. Along the lower line of cheek and jaw was a clear demarcation where the brown of tanned skin met the white that had been hidden from the sun. Oh, he's only a boy. What? Can he be Aldring's masked rider? The boy showed signs of returning consciousness. He stirred. His lips moved. A small brown hand clenched in his blouse. Venters knelt with a gathering horror of his deed. His bullet had entered the rider's right breast, high up to the shoulder. With hands that shook, Venters untied a black scarf and ripped open the blood-wet blouse. First he saw a gaping hole, dark red against a whiteness of skin, from which welled a slender red stream. Then the graceful, beautiful swell of a woman's breast. "'A woman!' he cried. "'A girl! I've killed a girl!' She suddenly opened eyes that transfixed Venters. They were fathomless blue. Consciousness of death was there, a blended terror and pain, but no consciousness of sight. She did not see Venters. She stared into the unknown. Then came a spasm of vitality. She writhed in a torture of reviving strength, and in her convulsions she almost tore from Venter's grasp. Slowly she relaxed and sank partly back. The ungloved hand sought the wound, and pressed so hard that her wrist half buried itself in her bosom. 
Blood trickled between her spread fingers, and she looked at Venters with eyes that saw him. He cursed himself and the unerring aim of which he had been so proud. He had seen that look in the eyes of a crippled antelope which he was about to finish with his knife. But in her it had infinitely more, a revelation of mortal spirit. The instinctive bringing to life was there, and the divining helplessness, and the terrible accusation of the stricken. "'Forgive me, I didn't know,' burst out Venters. "'You've shot me, you've killed me,' she whispered, in panting gasps. Upon her lips appeared a fluttering, bloody froth. By that Venters knew the air in her lungs was mixing with blood. "'Oh, I knew it would come some day. Oh, the burn!' Hold me, I'm sinking. It's all dark. Ah, God, mercy. Her rigidity loosened in one long quiver, and she lay back limp, still, white as snow, with closed eyes. Venters thought then that she died, but the faint pulsation of her breast assured him that life yet lingered. Death seemed only a matter of moments, for the bullet had gone clear through her. Nevertheless, he tore sage leaves from a bush and pressing them tightly over her wounds, he bound the black scarf round her shoulder, tying it securely under her arm. Then he closed the blouse, hiding from his sight that blood-stained, accusing breast. "'What now?' he questioned, with flying mind. "'I must get out of here. She's dying, but I can't leave her.' He rapidly surveyed the sage to the north, and made out no animate object. Then he picked up the girl's sombrero and the mask— this time the mask gave him as great a shock as when he first removed it from her face, for in the woman he had forgotten the rustler, and this black strip of felt-cloth established the identity of Oldring's masked rider. Venters had solved the mystery. He slipped his rifle under her, and lifting her carefully upon it, he began to retrace his steps. The dog trailed in his shadow, and the horse that had stood drooping by followed without a call. Venters chose the deepest tufts of grass and clumps of sage on his return. From time to time he glanced over his shoulder. He did not rest. His concern was to avoid jarring the girl and to hide his trail. Gaining the narrow canyon, he turned and held close to the wall till he reached his hiding place. When he entered the dense thicket of oaks, he was hard put to it to force a way through. But he held his burden almost upright, and by slipping sidewise and bending the saplings, he got in. Through sage and grass he hurried to the grove of silver spruces. He laid the girl down, almost fearing to look at her. Though marble pale and cold, she was living. Venters then appreciated the tax that long carry had been to his strength. He sat down to rest. Whitey sniffed at the pale girl and whined and crept to Venters' feet. Ring lapped the water in the runway of the spring. Presently Venters went out to the opening, caught the horse, and leading him through the thicket, unsaddled him, and tied him with a long halter. Wrangle left his browsing long enough to whinny and toss his head. Venters felt that he could not rest easily till he had secured the other rustler's horse, so, taking his rifle and calling for Ring, he set out. Swiftly yet watchfully he made his way through the canyon to the oval and out to the cattle trail. What few tracks might have betrayed him he obliterated, so only an expert tracker could have trailed him. Then, with many a wary backward glance across the sage, he started to round up the rustler's horse. This was unexpectedly easy. He led the horse to lower ground, out of sight from the opposite side of the oval, along the shadowy western wall, and so on into his canyon and secluded camp. 
The girl's eyes were open. A feverish spot burned in her cheeks. She moaned something unintelligible to Venters, but he took the movement of her lips to mean that she wanted water. Lifting her head, he tipped the canteen to her lips. After that, she again lapsed into unconsciousness, or a weakness which was its counterpart. Venters noted, however, that the burning flush had faded into the former pallor. The sun set behind the high canyon rim, and a cool shade darkened the walls. Venters fed the dogs and put a halter on the dead rustler's horse. He allowed Wrangle to browse free. This done, he cut spruce boughs and made a lean-to for the girl. Then, gently lifting her upon a blanket, he folded the sides over her. The other blanket he wrapped about his shoulders and found a comfortable seat against a spruce tree that upheld the little shack. Ring and Whitey lay near at hand, one asleep, the other watchful. Venters dreaded the night's vigil. At night his mind was active, and this time he had to watch and think and feel beside a dying girl whom he had all but murdered. A thousand excuses he invented for himself, yet not one made any difference in his act or his self-reproach. It seemed to him that when night fell black he could see her white face so much more plainly. "'She'll go presently,' he said, "'and be out of agony. Thank God!' Every little while certainty of her death came to him with a shock, and then he would bend over and lay his ear on her breast. Her heart still beat. The early night blackness cleared to the cold starlight. The horses were not moving, and no sound disturbed the deathly silence of the canyon. "'I'll bury her here,' thought Venters, and let her grave be as much a mystery as her life was. For the girl's few words, the look of her eyes, the prayer, had strangely touched Venters. She was only a girl, he soliloquized. What wife she to Oldring? Rustlers don't have wives, nor sisters, nor daughters. She was bad, that's all. But somehow, well, she may not have willingly become the companion of rustlers. That prayer of hers to God for mercy— Life is strange and cruel. I wonder if other members of Aldring's gang are women. Likely enough. But what was his game? Aldring's masked rider, a name to make villagers hide and lock their doors, a name credited with a dozen murders, a hundred forays, and a thousand stealings of cattle. What part did the girl have in this? It may have served Aldring to create mystery. Hours passed. The white stars moved across the narrow strip of dark blue sky above. The silence awoke to the low hum of insects. Venters watched the immovable white face, and as he watched, hour by hour waiting for death, the infamy of her passed from his mind. He thought only of the sadness, the truth of the moment. Whoever she was, whatever she had done, she was young, and she was dying. The afterpart of the night wore on interminably. The starlight failed, and the gloom blackened to the darkest hour. "'She'll die at the gray of dawn,' muttered Venters, remembering some old woman's fancy. The blackness paled to gray, and the gray lightened, and day peeped over the eastern rim. Venters listened at the breast of the girl. She still lived. Did he only imagine that her heart beat stronger, ever so slightly, but stronger? He pressed his ear closer to her breast, and he rose with his own pulse quickening. "'If she doesn't die soon, she's got a chance, the barest chance to live,' he said. He wondered if the internal bleeding had ceased. There was no more film of blood upon her lips, but no corpse could have been whiter. Opening her blouse, he untied the scarf and carefully picked away the sage leaves from the wound in her shoulder. It had closed. 
Lifting her lightly, he ascertained that the same was true of the hole where the bullet had come out. He reflected on the fact that clean wounds closed quickly in the healing upland air. He recalled instances of riders who had been cut and shot apparently to fatal issues, yet the blood had clotted, the wounds closed, and they had recovered. He had no way to tell if internal hemorrhage still went on, but he believed that it had stopped. Otherwise she would surely not have lived so long. He marked the entrance of the bullet, and concluded that it had just touched the upper lobe of her lung. Perhaps the wound in the lung had also closed. As he began to wash the bloodstains from her breast, and carefully rebandaged the wound, he was vaguely conscious of a strange, grave happiness in the thought that she might live. Broad daylight and a hint of sunshine high on the cliff-rim to the west brought him to consideration of what he had better do and while busy with his few camp tasks he resolved the thing in his mind it would not be wise for him to remain long in his present hiding-place and if he intended to follow the cattle trail and try to find the rustlers he had better make a move at once for he knew that rustlers being riders would not make much of a day's or night's absence from camp for one or two of their number but when the missing ones failed to show up in reasonable time there would be a search and venters was afraid of that a good tracker could trail me, he muttered, and I'd be cornered here. Let's see. Rustlers are a lazy set when they're not on the ride. I'll risk it. Then I'll change my hiding place. He carefully cleaned and reloaded his guns. When he rose to go, he bent a long glance down upon the unconscious girl. Then, ordering Whitey and Ring to keep guard, he left the camp. The safest cover lay close under the wall of the canyon, and here, through the dense thickets, Venters made his slow, listening advance toward the oval. Upon gaining the wide opening, he decided to cross it, and follow the left wall till he came to the cattle trail. He scanned the oval as keenly as if hunting for antelope. Then, stooping, he stole from one cover to another, taking advantage of rocks and bunches of sage, until he had reached the thickets under the opposite wall. Once there, he exercised extreme caution in his surveys of the ground ahead, but increased his speed when moving. Dodging from bush to bush, he passed the mouths of two canyons, and in the entrance of a third canyon he crossed a wash of swift, clear water to come abruptly upon the cattle trail. It followed the low bank of the wash, and, keeping it in sight, Venters hugged the line of sage and thicket. Like the curves of a serpent, the canyon wound for a mile or more, and then opened into a valley. Patches of red showed clear against the purple of sage, and farther out on the level, dotted strings of red led away to the wall of rock. "'Ha! the red herd!' exclaimed Venters. Then dots of white and black told him there were cattle of other colors in this enclosed valley. Oldring, the rustler, was also a rancher.' Venter's calculating eye took count of stock that outnumbered the red herd. "'What a range!' went on Venter's. "'Water and grass enough for fifty thousand head, and no riders needed.' After his first burst of surprise and rapid calculation, Venter's lost no time there, but slunk again into the sage on his back trail. With the discovery of Oldring's hidden cattle range had come enlightenment on several problems. Here the rustler kept his stock. Here was Jane Witherstein's red herd. Here were the few cattle that had disappeared from the cottonwood slopes during the last two years. Until Aldring had driven the red herd, his thefts of cattle for that time had not been more than enough to supply meat for his men. Of late no drives had been reported from Stirling or the villages north. 
and Venters knew that the riders had wondered at Old Ring's inactivity in that particular field. He and his band had been active enough in their visits to Glaze and Cottonwoods. They always had gold, but of late the amount gambled away and drunk and thrown away in the villages had given rise to much conjecture. Old Ring's more frequent visits had resulted in new saloons, and where there had formerly been one raid or shooting fray in the little hamlets, there were now many. Perhaps Oldring had another range farther on up the pass, and from there drove the cattle to distant Utah towns where he was little known. But Venters came finally to doubt this, and from what he had learned in the last few days, a belief began to form in Venters' mind that Oldring's intimidations of the villages and the mystery of the masked rider, with his alleged evil deeds, and the fierce resistance offered any trailing riders, and the rustling of cattle, these things were only the craft of the rustler chief to conceal his real life and purpose and work in Deception Pass. And like a scouting Indian, Venters crawled through the sage of the Oval Valley, crossed trail after trail on the north side, and at last entered the canyon out of which headed the cattle trail, and into which he had watched the rustlers disappear. If he had used caution before, now he strained every nerve to force himself to creeping stealth and to sensitiveness of ear. He crawled along so hidden that he could not use his eyes except to aid himself in the toilsome progress through the breaks and ruins of cliff wall. Yet from time to time, as he rested, he saw the massive red walls growing higher and wilder, more looming and broken. He made note of the fact that he was turning and climbing. The sage and thickets of oak and breaks of alder gave place to pinion pine growing out of rocky soil. Suddenly a low, dull murmur assailed his ears. At first he thought it was thunder, then the slipping of a weathered slope of rock. But it was incessant, and as he progressed it filled out deeper, and from a murmur changed into a soft roar. "'Falling water,' he said. "'There's volume to that. I wonder if it's the stream I lost.' The roar bothered him, for he could hear nothing else. Likewise, however, no rustlers could hear him. Emboldened by this, and sure that nothing but a bird could see him, he arose from his hands and knees to hurry on. An opening in the pinions warned him that he was nearing the height of slope. He gained it, and dropped low with a burst of astonishment. Before him stretched a short canyon with rounded stone floor bare of grass or sage or tree, and with curved shelving walls. A broad rippling stream flowed toward him, and at the back of the canyon waterfall burst from a wide rent in the cliff, and bounding down in two green steps spread into a long white sheet. If Venters had not been indubitably certain that he had entered the right canyon, his astonishment would not have been so great. There had been no breaks in the walls, no side canyons entering this one where the rustler's tracks and the cattle trail had guided him, and therefore he could not be wrong. But here the canyon ended and presumably the trails also. That cattle trail headed out of here, Venters kept saying to himself. It headed out. Now what I want to know is, how on earth did cattle ever get in here? If he could be sure of anything, it was of the careful scrutiny he had given that cattle track, every hoof-mark of which headed straight west. He was now looking east at an immense round boxed corner of canyon, down which tumbled a thin white veil of water, scarcely twenty yards wide. Somehow, somewhere, his calculations had gone wrong. For the first time in years he found himself doubting his rider's skill in finding tracks, and his memory of what he had actually seen. 
In his anxiety to keep under cover, he must have lost himself in this offshoot of Deception Pass, and thereby in some unaccountable manner missed the canyon with the trails. There was nothing else for him to think. Rustlers could not fly, nor cattle jump down thousand-foot precipices. He was only proving what the sage-riders had long said of this labyrinthine system of deceitful canyons and valleys. Trails led down into Deception Pass, but no rider had ever followed them. On a sudden he heard above the soft roar of the waterfall an unusual sound that he could not define. He dropped flat behind a stone and listened. From the direction he had come swelled something that resembled a strange muffled pounding and splashing and ringing. Despite his nerve the chill sweat began to dampen his forehead. What might not be possible in this stone-walled maze of mystery? The unnatural sound passed beyond him as he lay gripping his rifle and fighting for coolness. Then from the open came the sound, now distinct and different. Venters recognized a hobble-bell of a horse, and the cracking of iron on submerged stones, and the hollow splash of hoofs in water. Relief surged over him. His mind caught again at realities, and curiosity prompted him to peep from behind the rock. In the middle of the stream waited a long string of packed burrows driven by three superbly mounted men. Had Venters met these dark-clothed, dark-visaged, heavily-armed men anywhere in Utah, let alone in this robber's retreat, he would have recognized them as rustlers. The discerning eye of a rider saw the signs of a long, arduous trip. These men were packing in supplies from one of the northern villages. They were tired, and their horses were almost played out, and the burrows plodded on, after the manner of their kind when exhausted, faithful and patient, but as if every weary, splashing, slipping step would be their last. All this Venters noted in one glance. After that he watched with a thrilling eagerness. Straight at the waterfall the rustlers drove the burrows, and straight through the middle, where the water spread into a fleecy, thin film like dissolving smoke. Following closely, the rustlers rode into this white mist, showing in bold black relief for an instant, and then they vanished. Venters drew a full breath that rushed out in brief and sudden utterance. "'Good heaven! Of all the holes for a rustler! There's a cavern under that waterfall, and a passageway leading out to a canyon beyond. Old Ring hides in there. He needs only to guard a trail leading down from the sage flat above. Little danger of this outlet to the pass being discovered. I stumbled on it by luck after I had given up, and now I know the truth of what puzzled me most—' why that cattle trail was wet. He wheeled and ran down the slope, and out to the level of the sagebrush. Returning, he had no time to spare, only now and then, between dashes, a moment when he stopped to cast sharp eyes ahead. The abundant grass left no trace of his trail. Short work he made of the distance to the circle of canyons. He doubted that he would ever see it again. He knew he never wanted to. Yet he looked at the red corners and towers with the eyes of a rider picturing landmarks never to be forgotten. Here he spent a panting moment in a slow-circling gaze of the sage-oval and the gaps between the bluffs. Nothing stirred except the gentle wave of the tips of the brush. Then he pressed on, past the mouths of several canyons, and over ground new to him, now close under the eastern wall. This latter part proved to be easy travelling, well screened from possible observation from the north and west, and he soon covered it and felt safer in the deepening shade of his own canyon. 
Then the huge, notched bulge of red rim loomed over him, a mark by which he knew again the deep cove where his camp lay hidden. As he penetrated the thicket, safe again for the present, his thoughts reverted to the girl he had left there. The afternoon had far advanced. How would he find her? He ran into camp, frightening the dogs. The girl lay with wide-open, dark eyes, and they dilated when he knelt beside her. The flush of fever shone in her cheeks. He lifted her and held water to her dry lips, and felt an inexplicable sense of lightness as he saw her swallow in a slow, choking gulp. Gently he laid her back. "'Who are you?' she whispered haltingly. "'I'm the man who shot you,' he replied. "'You'll not kill me now?' "'No, no.' "'What will you do with me?' "'When you get better, strong enough, "'I'll take you back to the canyon "'where the rustlers ride through the waterfall.' "'As with a faint shadow from a flitting wing overhead, "'the marble whiteness of her face seemed to change. "'Don't take me back there.' End of chapter 5